Transplanter RPG is proudly sponsored by at Dimitri Opines on Twitter. That is at D-M-I-T-R-Y-O-P-I-N-E-S. And Explain Trade, a negotiation skills training consultancy believing in the power of D&D and Transplaner's potential to grow, tell great stories, and lift up our community. Explain Trade trains negotiators for governments, big companies, NGOs, and offers e-learning courses for individuals looking to get a better deal from their boss. Level up your charisma score and check out explaintrade.com. Hey there, thank you for tuning in to Trans Planar RPG. We are an all transgender, people of color led, 100% homebrew, Dungeons and Dragons 5th edition live streamed actual play campaign set in an original non colonial anti orientalist world. I am your game master, Connie, my pronouns are they, he, and she, and my cast is as follows. C. Thomas plays Oka Hien, an Osamar Bloodhunter. Max Guo plays Dewey Quirk, an Aarakocra Artificer. Erica Flaidlin plays V. Noxherzo, an Elf Sorcerer. Valiant Dorian plays Vasca, a Yuanti Bard. Hamna Shahid plays Jaron Cotter, a Dragonborn Rogue. Dare Hickman plays Gentle, a Triton Monk. Quinn B. Rodriguez plays Sitlali, a Changeling Cleric. And Austin Knight plays Abiku Ishtar, a Reborn Goliath Ranger. So, with that out of the way, here are the content warnings for this episode. Content warnings for this episode include fantasy violence, blood and gore, monsters and monstrosity, death of loved ones, complex and complicated relationships, interpersonal conflict, and destructive sound effects. Furthermore, the URL party encounters a child in a dangerous situation, but the child themselves is never endangered or threatened. The child is also not being manipulated magically, emotionally, or otherwise. Arc 7, Episode 1 A Single Ritual Tear From On the Island of Adopted Children by Sarah E. Chin 17 17 souls Gone In minutes consecrated to the empty, a gift from mother to oblivion, a gift from the mindless, the eyes ever watchful, guardians of Lilith and her immaculate garden. We open on a wall, a plain white wall, its tiles smooth and flat in perfect tessellation. And then red splatters across, and we hear the screaming. The red lights strobing, painting everything in vermilion opulence. The alarm klaxons, the smell of sulfur, chlorine, phosphorus brining in the air alongside the coppery tang of blood. Researchers scramble down a dimly lit, pulsing hallway. One of them is missing an arm, another is on fire. They screech to a halt in front of a closed door. A key card is produced, tapped frantically, but error. Ah, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. Error. Error. Please, fuck. No, 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 please, 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 come on, come on. And rounding the corner, a horror. A pyramid of skin protruding from the throat of a person. It yanks 
forward, moving like a tumor. And it descends on the researchers and we slash over to a lab. And inside it, a phoenix, an emissary of pure fire, green eyes glinting, a sickly black corruption streaking through its flames like obsidian veins. Beast after beast hurtle themselves into its roiling inferno, gibbering mounds of flesh and teeth, radiant globules of shadow, hand-shaped creatures with pincers embedded in their non-palms. The charred corpses of countless monsters litter this room, but so do the corpses of people. And yet, the emissary rages, heedless of the chaos it wreaks, burning empty beast after empty beast. But there are too many. They're piling on one after the other. They're too hungry, peppering its sides like coals on a fire. But then time freezes. And for a split second, the weave tenses and stepping past the glass aperture of this lab are two twins. Both are elves with dark brown skin. One has a partially shaved head with long locks, iridescent golden tattoos glittering along their skin in the shape of a star map. And the other has a fully shaved head and wears a wide-brimmed black hat. An aura of, what is that, death? surround her, but the Raven Queen's presence flutters off her shoulders like obsidian feathers. She carries an intricately bound grimoire. And finally, also stepping forward, is a human man with short black hair and a well-trimmed black beard. He narrows his one silver eye and his other golden eye, a prosthetic with fine-tuned features, and scans this battlefield. And Solar Kim smiles. A Gwoon rolls their neck and crouches, fur beginning to sprout along their skin, and Adaria traces a magical sigil floating atop the open pages of her grimoire, a rune for a chronomancy spell, Time Stop. And as this trio moves in to purge these beasts and help this emissary, we pull out of this lab and phase through a dozen other chambers, workshops, break rooms, mess halls, test rooms, common spaces, every single one of them in roiling chaos. Bedlam. Panic. Empty monsters tearing through corridors, rending flesh, smashing bone. They attack people and emissaries alike. Yes, emissaries corrupted with mother's blood smash through walls, rampage in terror and fury. And finally, we stop in Laboratory 25C. A large domed hall whose circular walls are lined with tall, translucent cylinders. This used to be a hardware workshop, but in recent years was transformed into a wetware incubation center. The floor is slick with some kind of amniotic fluid, and monsters are everywhere. Dozens of wretched, those fleshy bipeds with gnashing teeth and dull shark-like eyes, a half dozen howlers, hunkering, twitching, wolf-like creatures with sharp, bristling spines and a bulging sack of deadly acid brimming on their throat. 
tooth spitters. Humanoid beasts made of pink, fleshy gum, their bodies bristling with sharp, knife-like canines. Flesh warpers, piles of hovering, living skin, muscle, eye, mouth, hair, tendons smashed together in unholy conglomeration lengths of metallic chain binding their formless structure together. Terrified researchers, several dozen at least, crawl under tables, cower behind shelves, desperately pound on a wide circular metal door that refuses to open, tapping keycards to no avail. Mangled corpses litter this room, and every single one of them is missing its face. And in the center of this chamber, we see a 15-foot-tall white tiger. It has a long, whip-like tail, and its eyes are a piercing amber. Tufts of fur extend from thick, muscular joints and billow in an unseen wind. This tiger's face is strained with fury foam frothing in the black lining of its jaws. No fewer than a half dozen wretched are clinging onto its hind legs, digging their sharp sucker-like mouths into its fur. This emissary staggers backward, smashes against a row of glass chambers as the face dealer whips its thick, powerful tail. This thing, this empty beast, is 15 feet tall, just like the emissary, and its hide bristles with the sobbing, screaming, hysterical faces of fallen researchers. And at the back of this chamber, we see a raised dais, its stone etched with teleportation sigils. These runes glow, and then shimmering into existence, we see five figures. The first is Vasanti. So Vasanti, what do we see as you teleport into the URL, and how are you taking in this chaos? Yeah, the first thing you see is this elf woman of draconic ancestry uh, with flowing white hair, a face that is around its edges covered in green scales, and what stands out most of her face is the kelly green eye in one and a purple eye in the other, as she's in green uh, and brown armor. The newest addition would be this bracer along her left arm that's covered in dragons, looks like dragon scales of green, black, and uh, at the end of it, wrapping around her hand is a red dragon claw, uh, very spectral, almost like a mage hand in the shape of a dragon claw. And she's still like, literally, she was so quick to go on there. She's still strapping the thing on. This is how new it is. She's still tightening some of the straps and getting it ready. And she's looking in at everything and she is, preparing herself immediately for getting some type of fight on. She is just no nonsense about it at this point, uh, just getting ready to ready her magic for maybe the first blow she has to do. Ooh, yeah. How does it look as you start to pull on your sorceress magic that, like, swims in your veins? I think as she's channeling the weave through her, as she does as a sort of a, a draconic um, sorcerer, uh, she's pulling it through her hand. She's 
what used to be a diamond on her chest and her armor is now uh, uh, diamond studs along her bracer that are starting to glow brightly purple as she's channeling the magic. And as she's like getting ready for that moment of the magic coming out, suddenly she's struck with several images in her mind. She's been through a lot lately and it is, she sees Sievert uh, being killed by her father right in front of her. She sees her father as she deals the death blow to him uh, when he nearly killed her. And then she sees Rev holding Grimm with tear and soul coming out of it, which she had tried to make Rev promise not to take tear and soul. And all of these memories flooding into her as she's trying to spell, get her spell like pulling through her body causes her to like stutter a little bit. Like if you were to be able to see the weave channeling through her body, it's like suddenly it goes from a smooth flow into her palm into like, it's like a stuttering, like a record skipping and the needle just skipping. And you just can feel that the energy is not gonna come out exactly the way she wanted it to. Mm, I think we see the purple glowing on the studs of your bracer like flicker, uh, almost like in tune to the klaxons and like the red light that's bathing this horrorscape, just goosh, 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 pulsing all around you. And those studs also flicker as you try to channel magic, uh, but those images keep disturbing you and uh, preventing you from truly accessing your power. And we're going to pan across the dais to someone else rippling into existence, Dewey. What do you look like, and how are you taking in this chaos? Dewey is a smallish Aarakocra guy. Uh, he's wearing his Paragon robes, uh, but they're, he's changed them so that they're not so um, bright and ostentatious. Uh, they're muted, like grayscale, uh, just to try and fit in. He wasn't going to put on like a lab coat and try and fit in again, but he has toned the robe down. Um, he's wearing closed-toed closed shoes, uh, he's got the god jar strapped to his side. It's faintly glowing. Um, there's a cork stopper in the top of it. Um, and he's, he's just, as he lands on this dais, he's looking around, trying to take in everything, trying to figure out where the heck he is. Uh, Cause this is not where, not where he remembers this route going to. Absolutely. I think your eyebrows furrow and a dark expression comes across your face as you don't recognize the place that you had thumbed in the coordinates to. And we pan across this dais to the next person ribboning into being. Jaron, how are you taking all of this in? When we pan over to Jaron, we see uh, someone standing about five foot ten, dark brown skin that transitions into these like green scales at the edges of their face and their arms and their legs. Uh, Jaron has uh, multiple horns, but all of them broken except for one. And his hair, his long white hair is like pulled back into a ponytail. They have a hand loom strapped to their back and as they ripple into existence in the middle of this chaos, I think their tail starts lashing in alarm and surprise as they come in to see this attack, I suppose, that he wasn't expecting. And I think uh, his hand kind of immediately goes uh, to his side where he has uh, his daggers and he kind of like is ready. Mm, totally. As your hands immediately jut over to your weapons, we're going to pan across the dais uh, to the final figure, I think, appearing upon its wooden and stone struts. Sitlali, 
How are you absorbing this bedlam? So Sitlali is six feet because they have their changing magic again, dab. Um, the sides of their hair shaved and the remaining like long mane of bright pastel hair, just kind of a cascading mess. Black lips surrounded by a manicured pastel stubble beard. Uh, love that for her. And the Vinash scars are kind of faded. The There are marig- three marigolds on their chest, question mark. And across their entire body, a star map of Endake kind of swirls in these like bright pastels and blues. Mostly blues, I think. Uh, blues and golds. And like, uh, they're wearing pants and like their old dress is in a like chopped kind of like into a crop top. And they've got this adjustable cane at her side. So Lolly is still in the moment before where Mercy had been running to her. Mercy was coming. Mercy always comes where Sitlali goes. It's just, they come as a pair. They don't, why would they separate? They have no reason to separate first and second. It doesn't make sense. But Mercy wasn't fast enough for once. Things were moving too fast, too many bodies in the way. She wasn't able to push people out of the way fast enough. And as the teleportation started to take fingertips brushed each other and before they could get a good grip on her they were here and Sitlali blinks and can't even really process the everything around them because what the fuck is going to happen to Mercy Absolutely. I think what this means is as Sitlali and Vasanti are kind of stuttering for their own reasons, right? And as Rev also warps into being as the final person on this dais, I think, Jerron, you're probably the one with the most compost mentis, the most composed mind here to do something first. As you're looking at everything just descending into chaos around you, your hands on the hilts of your daggers, what do you do? Wretched. Howlers, tooth spitters, flesh warpers are menacing the dozens of URL researchers here who are screaming, fleeing in terror. You see a corner of people trying to barricade them uh, away from these like chicken boys attempting to get over like a tall series of wooden tables that have been turned onto their sides. You see people running like just in mayhem all across the area being chased by no fewer than three howlers, these wolf-like spiny creatures that are spitting acid at them, and where the acid lands, like their lab coat singes, and they scream, and you smell burning flesh. And obviously, in the center of this lab, there are two titans clashing with each other. There's the white tiger, which seems to be an emissary of sorts, corrupted with that black foam at their mouth, similar to what you saw of the black tortoise in Moreau's, and the face stealer, which all of you have either encountered personally or have at least heard of uh, grappling it, which is this massive creature fleshy with like three different sets of limbs uh, and this long neck uh, ending in like a humanoid face and various other people's faces are stitched onto its palate flesh and has a long whipping tail that has various sharp toxic spikes on it as well. So what do you do? 
Seeing all of this, I think Jerron's eyes immediately go towards the two, as you described it, titans clashing, because that is a very familiar scene to Jerron, seeing the emissary corrupted by mother's blood. This is something that Jerron has encountered before, something that they have helped with before. And so I think their instinct is to run towards the two uh, beings in combat with each other. And as he's running towards them, he, I think, like tosses his dagger at the sort of the like main face of the face stealer while simultaneously saying, going down uh, several octaves into Adam's voice and commanding the empty, the mother's blood, the corruption to release the emissary. So your main goal here is to try to help the emissary, right? And you're just sort of throwing the dagger to assist in that situation. So yes. make a charisma performance check. Oh no. Unnatural 20? Unnatural 20. Okay. As the dagger flies through the air, I think your aim is true and it sort of stabs through the side of the face, like through the cheek and the jowl uh, of that central head up top. It sort of just like whips its head around and turns spitting black blood, but it does release its like sharp claws from the white now bloodied fur of this emissary, which sort of falls onto the ground on its two front paws away from this shattered glass, now streaming onto the ground around you from these caved in incubation chambers. And as you use Adam's voice to coax out that mother's blood, you see this massive tiger turn its head onto you and you see its amber eyes are clouded with some like milky black substance that seems to be coming from its foam. But the foam begins to, I think, propagate like clouds uh, metastasizing around its mouth and it just sort of like dribbles onto the slick floor. Uh, it seems to be like like you're leeching out the corruption. Uh, and the tiger's like, <laughs> and it's twitching, uh, but it doesn't seem to be gripped in fury anymore. And you've opened up an opportunity here. I think the way that Jaron is trying to sort of pull the empty, uh, pull this corruption out is as if uh, he is like pulling on a thread and like unraveling it. Um, I think, uh, if it wouldn't hurt them, actually, maybe even if it would, um, I think Jaron is like taking the the empty this corruption and almost like threading it around like himself in order to like pull it out of this emissary. I like that. I think what everyone sees is as more of these bubbles foam and froth on this tiger's jowls. It sloughs onto the ground and almost like it's alive, begins approaching Jaron instead, right? Like a snake winding its way, like a bow constrictor approaching prey through a forest floor. And this like kind of bubbling serpentine form of mother's blood begins to circle around Jaron and then lift up into the air, like the oscillating blades of an auger surrounding Jaron as Jaron continues to speak. So Jaron is leeching the corruption out of this tiger, but is sort of like endangering themselves in the process. And I think here someone else gets to act. Uh, I think Vasanti is um, trying to push away this feeling that is getting in the way of her casting the magic. She's gonna see, um, I think she's gonna try to get as many of like the little creatures, like, you know, the little, what she refers to as chicken boys and everything around the space. I imagine there's many of them. Uh, just out of the way. She 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 remembers that burning these things seems to be a pretty good trick to doing them. So she wants to like cast just like scorching rays on all these little creatures around them. However, because of this like stuttering effect, 
it's going to come out more like a bunch of random chromatic orbs that just come out, I think. Like, one shoots out as a thunderbolt, one is a lightning bolt, one's a poison bolt, an an ice bolt, and so on and so forth. She's just plowing down these things with random things as her... You can see where she's much, usually much more confident in her magic. You can just see that she's, like, a little hesitant and she's doing this, and it just causes these little random chromatic orbs to come out and hit these things. I'm actually going to treat this as a whiz save based on how you're describing the reason why your magic is stuttering. And I also think Visanti's wisdom is kind of low. Uh, so roll that save for me. It is after that uh, that feather burned that she carried. Oh, gosh. Uh, yep. Uh, I'm going to use a luck point. Okay, yeah, I'm going to use a luck point for that. Go for it. It's the, okay, well, uh, that's a two. Both times it was a two with zero modifier. Multicolored orbs explode out of your hand as you thrust your spellcasting arm forward, and they pepper not only the wretched, but also some of the people here. It just goes everywhere. It's indiscriminate. We see like a globule of toxic acid like explode against that barricade and melt, like melt through the wood, allowing some of the wretched to like jump through that hole you've created and then like latch onto a screaming researcher as well as a orb of pure fire landing on one of the tooth spitters and scorching away its gums and rotting its teeth off of its body as well as like a orb of pure lightning force sparking and sparking and sparking and exploding against the side of a howler uh, whose, I think, like throat sack explodes and just sprays pure poison and acid on like everyone in its area. We see researchers screaming as their flesh is starting to melt down to the bone from that explosion. Sounds about right. What do other people do? Uh, I think to Dewey, seeing that... (laughs) Uh, sort of magic is popping off everywhere. Uh, a little bit too wild. Um, he's going to pull out his handy-dandy rope trick, uh, <laughs> his ring, his aperture, and sort of set it up um, behind him so that the researchers that are getting, taking all of that collateral damage, pointing to it and be like, it's safe in there. Make a charisma arcana check. It's going to take a lot to get their attention, in the middle of this bedlam. Okay. Let me use my flash of genius. Uh, so that's a 20, because, <laughs> man, I'm not charismatic. A 20. Okay, I think you get the attention of two researchers <laughs> with a 20 out of the several dozen here. Uh, and as you open up that portal into that demiplane, a plate of darkness just slices open in the air behind you, and that rope drops out, right? And you see sort of like... Hun- hunkering underneath a table that currently has like a frost covering from one of Visanti's like ice orbs, you see two familiar looking researchers. One of them is a half-elf woman with a ponytail and these glasses that are currently fogged up with sweat and panic. And another one is a half-orc woman with a braid. And you recognize them immediately from the black tongue. Back in the Court of Ravens, this is Doctors Pelpone and Sato. They were part of Mahu's favor, that research group that had been there to find the Hydra Flare, who had worked under Dr. Ting. 
They make eye contact with you. You make eye contact with them. There's like a moment, but then they both see the, the rope and they just, they scramble for it. They like scramble out from underneath the table and they run toward the rope. And as they start grabbing onto it, it the half-elf woman is the first to go, but she keeps slipping down the rope. She's not very athletic. Uh, and they're trying their best. So it's taking them some time. And the half-orc woman is under her, like trying to like push her up. And Sitlali, that's when you see a howler, like shaking its head off from some of the concussion of one of the exploded orbs from Asante, turn its eyes onto what's happening and it <laughs> and you see it's like a throat sort of bubble up as it lowers its head and starts charging toward the two women. So Lali sees that and immediately is in the moment back here in the now and like their shield is out and I think she just kind of panics and casts sunbursts on the room. <laughs> Are you trying to, like, not hurt the researchers and the non-monsters? Yes. Okay. Yeah. It's specifically at, like, any of the empty beasts. All right. To see how effective that is to minimize collateral damage, I'm going to ask for an Arcana check. Okay. I'm good at those, I think. They say moments before disaster. I'm good at those. Okay. 28. Yeah, you do it. Tell me what it looks like. The shield is out. The stance is fine, even though the sword isn't out, but the stance is better than it had been. Last we saw Sid Lolly fight with a sword. And I think in this just emotionally charged moment and just the overstimulation of seeing all of these empty beasts and hearing Adam's voice for the first time since that last confrontation underneath the chrysalis hearing adam's fucking voice i think that's really what does it and not really knowing if he's in the room or not like not in that moment able to remember that jaron can do that because they never unpacked that um that alcohol ink star map just kind of flares out behind them into this huge golden set of wings and I think this time they're cicada wings and the spell just kind of happens. The weave moves the way that they ask it to. They just, it sings and it screams and it is radiant fire on everything. The room explodes into flame. Specifically the monsters do. We see the wretched ignite as a massive scintillating flash of light erupts out of the marigold uh, veins thrumming off of Sitlali's skin. And we see that howler that was like booking it toward Dr. Sato and Dr. Palpone also explode into flame. We see the face stealer in the center of the room just ignite in a column of pure fire. And Jaron, I think given the high roll from Sitlali, even this like slobbering black pustule of a ring of mother's blood that is beginning to wrap around you also ignites into fire. So you're also wreathed in a column of flame. Not me celebrating too early. <laughs> what were you? <laughs> I, just, I was like, ah, oh, yeah, the empty beast has been destroyed. Great. I'm safe. <laughs> I think all of you and the researchers, except Jaron, are safe. So Sitlali rolled damage for Sunburst. Okay, I got Uncanny Dodge, so I can at least have you can the damage. Ha Uncanny Dodge is it's for deck saves, though, right? No, it's uh, oh, for, for any all? attack. 
Okay, then yeah. you, I think you can, I, I'll let you have it because it's not directly on you anyway, but you're just in its periphery. Um, that's only 12d6. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> it's fine. Oh no. Bitch, are you gonna kill me right here, right now? Uh, you don't have that. I mean, you have you have that much HP, right? Hold on, Quinn has to do math. We never like it when Quinn has to do math. Uh, it's only 46. Jaron, you take 23 points of fire damage and everyone else takes 46 as heat shimmers through this chamber and the horrific screeching of burning monsters fills your ears. One by one, the smaller monsters drop dead like dying embers from a blackened sun. We also see some of the larger monsters begin to gibber and freak out. They're definitely on like the tail end of their lifespan. They're just sort of like wandering in circles. We see a howler charred running in chaos and frenetic frenzy and it like just rushes head first uh, into a wall and like hits and concusses itself. And we smell just like burning chemical poison acid singeing through the air. A truly horrific scent like charred flesh mixed with a kind of poison coming to waste. The face stealer, also ablaze, reels backward and whips its massive tail around, sweeping other empty beasts and researchers caught in the wake, just off their feet and slamming them against walls, their coats and flesh and hides catching on fire from this thing also being ignited. And though a lot of these beasts have been felled, there are still a few that are up and going. So let's circle back to Jaron. How is the white tiger emissary and the face stealer doing? As the mother's blood that was wreathed around you sort of starts to crumble into ash, just this like black slick just turning into these desiccated pieces of dust sweeping away in a breeze that comes through, you see this white tiger sort of coughs up and globules out the last bits of that black ichor, and it's sort of shaking its head, and we see those like black veins on its furred face begin to recede, and its eyes begin to clear. And the face stealer is still up, I imagine? It is, but it's burned pretty badly, and it's freaking out. It's like thrashing, kind of rampaging now. Jaron is going to run up in between the face stealer and this white tiger, uh, facing towards the the face stealer with, I think, like a different dagger in hand, um, a second one that he kind of like pulls off of his hip as he does so. And with the hand that has the prosthetic on it, the obsidian filaments of metal that make up the very hollow sort of prosthetic of their hand, they kind of like hold that out and make a motion in the air. And as they do so, they cast Warding Wind centered on themselves and ideally encompassing this white tiger as well in order to create essentially this cyclone, I guess, of like wind to encompass both of them and protect and ward off quite literally this emissary from the face stealer and from the other empty beasts. Okay, that feels to me like a dexterity sleight of hand check almost to make sure that the wind is able to protect and cover the emissary. I got a nine. I feel like Dewey's help in making this this arm for Jaron uh, take a flash of genius, which is plus five. If I can, then that's a 14. 
Okay, a 14 is definitely better than a nine. Uh, so with Dewey's flash of genius because of the help from the prosthetic arm, that wind erupts into a gale sort of around you and as well around this emissary. And as it does, we see those tongues of flame licking off the pallid flesh of the face sealer also getting whipped around. And it's sort of like, turns its head and sort of lumbers around on its burning haunches to sort of see you standing between it and the emissary. And its head sort of cocks to the side as its eyes on various faces stitched across its body follows like the wind whipping around. And I think what that 14 means is you've distracted it momentarily. It isn't sure if it needs to attack right now or if it needs to step back. And you've opened up a opportunity for the rest of your party to act. So I want to know what Vasanti's doing. I think after the chaos of, that she uh, unleashed upon the room, I think she's going to step back from trying to use her own magic and gets an idea to pull out Gamble. So I think her her, ra- her dragon claw has a little flash of green within its palm and a little tarot deck is inside of it. She grabs it and she, you know, mixes it up and she's like, oh, please, Scott, and just let this be a good one and flicks it out. And she actually pulls the lover card. So she's going to try casting suggestion actually on the face stealer to get it to help them take out the other creatures in the room. What do you say? These other small little creatures are the ones that actually did all this damage to you. You better take them out and and kill them. Okay, here's how I'm going to resolve that. You see it start to rear up onto its like hind two legs to slam down on Jerron and the emissary, who's still sort of gathering its senses. But as you speak, it pivots on its hip and turns toward you, and you draw its ire. Not the researchers, not Jerron, not the emissary, not the other beasts, you. And you are going to take 22 points of bludgeoning damage and an additional 14 points of fire damage as it just slams down on you with its two front claws. So uh, that was unsuccessful to uh, attempt to suggest it. Great. Love that. Well, you did draw it away from rampaging at people in here, at the very least. You have sort of aggroed it toward yourself. And I think you, Vasante in particular, would notice Rev is actually teleporting around this space in a flurry of feathers and brandishing Grim to reap the souls remaining in the bodies of the various wretched, the howlers, the tooth spitters, the flesh warpers that have died from Sitlali's sunburst to make sure they don't go to nowhere. Uh, And now I think we're going to pan back over to Dewey. Dewey, on the rope, Doctors Pelpone and Sato are sort of like on the bottom, the half-orc woman is kicking at like the flaming body of the howler that's sort of still like circulating underneath them, like almost like a a shark that's on fire. She's sort of like kicking at it and being like, go away, leave us alone. Hey, hey, you, from the black tongue, from the court. I knew it! I knew you used to work here! Yeah, we looked up your personnel file after uh, after everything that happened, and Dr. Ting just vanished, and, and uh, can you help us get this thing off? <laughs> I assume there's, like, a box on the wall with, like, emergency equipment, like a fire extinguisher, maybe, like, a fire blanket? Definitely. Can I smother the thing with, like, a fire blanket? Or, like, I guess maybe an extinguisher is hands-off better for Dewey. Yes. 
I think as you look around, you're familiar with the layout of the URL, and you're like, okay, there's always going to be like an emergency box and a fire extinguisher on the west wing of every lab, and you look to the west and you see it. And like, there's just a box on the wall uh, that has not been broken or used in the chaos people forget they forget their emergency procedures right and we also see underneath that box a fire extinguisher so you run over you grab this extinguisher off the wall and you start to pump it uh toward the howler and i need you to make either an athletics or an acrobatics check all right let's do some acrobatics 16. Okay, that's pretty good, actually. Let's say this howler was actually on its last legs. Uh, so you put out the fire, but what comes out of this extinguisher is a massive, powerful It's not just like mist to end the fire. It sort of blows the howler back and slams it against the wall. And it like, you hear something crack and it slumps to the ground, even as it's covered in this foam. And you feel something hot burning on your waist. And as you glance down, you see the god jar sort of humming as that shard of Galtanger was helping you uh, sort of empower this specific mechanical device uh, with like a special power. And with your 16, I think you're able to use this extinguisher if you want to sort of like... (laughs) Take out down the floor. Yeah, you you do a minesweeper situation. So I think with the 16, bam, bam. Acting as a guardian in front of Dr. Sato and Popone as howler after wretched after tooth spitter after flesh warper launch themselves at you, but you're going sort of side to side to side to side as like this white mist erupts all around you. Uh, And in between bursts of using the extinguisher, uh, Dewey's just yelling, you gotta, you gotta tell me what's in that file. Later, later, I'll get, you have to tell me, but later. And I think the more you all around, like the more wretched that are drawn to you and away from the other researchers, right? Like all four of you are sort of drawing the aggro of the monsters here and helping the people out by diverting their attention. And now I think this Faith Stealer lifts up off of Visanti and sort of like throws its head around and back again and raises its claws once more that are glimmering with these razor sharp nails. And Sitlali, I want to know what you do. Sitlali's a little panicked because I don't think they've put together that Adam is not in the room. So I think they're always darting around looking for him, looking for a tear, looking for the nothing plane, any of the things that they don't want to experience ever again and are probably going to experience all of them again almost assuredly um this can only go well but i think their eyes land on the face stealer and they see Vasanti, and they're like oh this is bad that's bad that's not good and i think they reach out to the weave around the face stealer and just kind of tug on the right strings and i'm gonna try to use my paladin move, unveil the extra planer. You wrote this, why do you look surprised? <gasps> I forgot! <laughs> what does it do? The creature has to make a wisdom save, and if it if it succeeds, I get to ask one, but if it fails, I get to ask two. <laughs> I got a natural five. Uh, it does not have a plus 14, so... Cool. Uh, so I get to ask two questions. First question, how could I get you to fuck off? Kill it. Cool. Dope. Um, what do you know about Adam's whereabouts? So, as you pull on this thread of the weave and try to, like, understand more about this thing, it doesn't speak a language. You're just sort of, like, trying to intuit 
whatever you can through this magical connection. And you get the sense as you open a line between yourself and this empty beast that all of Mother's blood seem to be connected in some way. Like all of these empty beasts, it's not a hive mind exactly, but they're cut from the same cloth. So if Adam is able to control or command that cloth, you might be able to reverse engineer his location if you take some of that blood. Excellent. Love that for me. Love knowing things. I think as you find that out, this thing is uh, 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 like wrenches its claw free from that thread of the weave and it snaps as it lashes its claw back to attack not only Visanti, but also swing its tail in Jaron's direction. This emissary is actually going to leap forward and attack it. It like barrels through the warding wind and just pummels it against the ground. And there's a moment where we see this, these two titans clash and there's a massive sound like a thunderclap as their bodies collide and a crater is formed from the impact on the ground where this tiger barrels this thing onto the floor. And it's just ripping into it like this tufts of fur are flying behind it. It's like, ah, like biting onto it, like ripping at its throat, using its tail to like sort of leash onto one of its limbs and pull it taut. And it's just ripping and rending and ripping and rending. And there's a moment where you even see it like rip one of its limbs off, like black blood flying everywhere. And it it throws the limb like off to the side and it smashes against several other howlers and just absolutely just pummels them and crushes them under the force of that blow. And it's just pure fury and aggression and chaos. And Jaron, you know that this fury isn't because of the corruption anymore. It's because it's pissed it was corrupted in the first place. This thing is now doing this of its own free will. And it's just ripping at this thing and finally like raises up. And I think just uses a huge claw to just slash across its entire body and kill it. And in that moment, as blood spatters against your entire body, Jaron, you're just covered in this black ichor. Rev teleports next to the face dealer and reefs all of the souls uh, off of its body as it dies. And rather unceremoniously, this white tiger gets up after killing this thing, turns without thanking you, without saying anything, and it runs toward that locked door and barrels through it. It like just punches through the door with its body as tile and steel and wood go flying and glass shatters and it leaves. It like barrels down a hallway and runs out of sight. And like a trigger being pulled, pretty much all of the researchers in this room also get up and they start fleeing. They start getting the fuck out of here. They're like picking themselves up behind tables, like shoving shelves off their bodies and just booking it, limping some of them, some of them nursing wounds, some of them patting down flames that had ignited on their bodies. And I think like as this fight starts to wind down and more monsters like stumble out and other weird different monsters start to stumble in, uh, there's sort of like a moment of like confused chaos. But in the midst of this, Dewey, you hear a shout. A familiar shout, but this time her voice is curdled in pain. It's the voice of your ex-wife. Do you turn in its direction? Yes, what is she doing in my place of work? You see Uilani is pinned under like a fallen beam from the ceiling in a corner of this room. You had missed her on your initial glance around the room because there was like... 
so much shit was happening. There were so many people, so many moving parts, but now that it's starting to settle down and the intense chaos is turning into more of a simmering confusion, you see Uwalani, her brown hair in waves falling limply across a bloodied face, and her like lower half is pinned under this fallen beam. And her upper half, like her left arm is bleeding heavily, and her right arm looks kind of crumpled. She looks just like heavily beat up uh, and like injured by these various monster attacks and collateral damage. And uh, she's just letting out a ah, duh, duh, and like trying to shove the beam off of her but it's not working dewey leaves the researchers be leaves his friends and casts enhance ability full strength and goes over and like tries and just like throws the beam to the side yeah, you rush over to this corner of the lab and you grab onto this beam. And as she sees you, her eyes, Cardu, <sighs> and there's a look of shock, surprise, and then something else. Make an athletics check. The 12 is as good as I'm going to get. Are you going to flash a genius that? To save your ex-wife's life? Listen, I don't have very many charges left. Not been rolling very well. Um. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Listen, here's my explanation. The hesitation. Here's my explanation. She's going to be disappointed in me either way. So you're not even gonna try. I'm gonna do oh it. My... All right. Okay. All okay. right. Fine. It's a seventeen. <laughs> Adrenaline and magic course through your veins as you grab this like cement pillar that had collapsed on her and you shove it off. It just comes up like it's made of like cotton candy and you fling it off to the side and it scatters. And she looks like that shock comes back. She was not expecting you to be able to do that. And she's sort of taking you in as dust settles around her. She coughs. She looks at your robes. She looks at the god jar. She looks at your like new hue of dappled feathers. She looks at your fingertips that have like the kind of like knights sky starry pattern and then she looks finally back into your face <sighs> cardu and before we continue the scene we cut back to the two researchers uh by the rope who have i think they've dropped themselves back onto the ground now that most of the monsters have filtered out right and most of the chaos in here has died down and they're sort of like looking around wildly what do the remaining of you do i think jaron's first instinct is to just look around and see if anybody needs like assist like medical assistance does anybody look hurt um i think jaron is gonna try and like essentially like help heal and like patch up people here i think you run around to people who are similarly trapped or who look unconscious but not dead and you start to stabilize people rushing from fallen person to fallen person what about you Vasanti or sitlali Vasanti's taking a moment on the ground now she has like a moment to actually think about like holy crap magic. I've got a lot of feelings I haven't really processed yet. She just like takes a moment to like have a few breaths and then like she gets off of the ground. You know, she's got some rips and tears and some bruises and a little bit of nicks in here and there, but I think she just casts mending on the clothes to make it look nice again and looks around, sees these researchers that she recognizes and I think she would go to them and see if they need any type of help. Visanti, as you approach, both the half-elf woman and the half-orc woman, Dr. Pelponi and Dr. Sato, look at you, and their faces also flash with recognition. And the half-elf woman, like, quickly adjusts her glasses, like, with shaking hands, and she's, like, like nervously scratching the back of her neck and looking around. Oh, you! Oh, what was it? What was it? Uh, v, right? Visanti, you can... My name is Visanti. I, I probably gave you some other name back then, but 
It's Vasanti. You did give us, I think, was it Vicky or Veronica or something? But then we heard all the news about the Paragons, and we knew that you were one of them, that your name was V. Sorry, Vasanti. I... Something bad is happening. Something really, really, really bad is happening. And Dr. Sato steps forward and I think grabs you by the front and like her sheer panic and is just sort of like sobbing as she's saying, we don't know what's going on. It's absolute chaos. And Dr. Tiktabar, our friend, you met him too, remember? On Mahu's favor, he, he, well, his face is gone. I guess uh, his his face is gone. <laughs> oh, oh God! Oh. And she like lets go of you and like turns away and seems to just be freaking out. It's okay now. Uh, you've got you've got paragons here. There's more than I'm a paragon. You're right. You heard that. But we've got more paragons here. We've got two paragons. We've got some other friends who are very good. We're here to to help you all. Dr. Pelpone, who is comforting Dr. Sato now, like she's like pulled her friend in and is like rubbing her back. Uh, this half-elf woman looks at you through her foggy glasses and says, I just, I don't understand. Back in the court, everything seemed fine. Dr. Tsing said, I even had a, a private conversation with him the night before all of you left. Uh, he said, well, he apologized for not opening up more. And I, I gave him condolences about Kilohana, his wife, and I, I don't understand. Um, you should know that that, that was actually not Dr. Sig, that was actually me. Um, he, the good doctor, um, was under the influence of some terrible magic and died back in the court and, uh, I made myself to look like him, and uh, we ran into each other by accident. I was just, we were trying to get out of there, and um, that was me. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I can't lie about that. Dr. Sato stops crying to look at you in confusion and shock, and Dr. Popone stops rubbing Dr. Sato's back to also look at you. Sitlali. I think you see Dewey crouched by Ulani, Jaron helping people. You overhear this conversation as well. What are you doing? They haven't registered that Adam is not in the room yet. They haven't registered that Adam is not in the room yet. Um, I think the adrenaline is still kicking for Sitlali. I think they are still kind of in fight or flight, more fight, entirely fight, actually. Given what they were able to get from the face stealer, I think they would try to find like a vial or something that isn't smashed and like try to get some of the blood for, uh, you know, tracking purposes. Totally. I think you're able to easily find a vial. This is a fucking lab. So you grab a vial off a counter that has, miraculously has not toppled over and you start to just like harvest as much of this black ichor as you can into this vial and you find a stopper and cork it and you start to like harvest even more as you do. And I think as they like get a decent amount, I think Sitlali reaches into their bag of holding and pulls out a cylinder? with unreadable runes in this hot green and just kind of considers it. And I think has to tech magic on it. They've done this before, they're doing it again, and they want to try and see if it matches what's in the vial. You cast detect magic on this cylinder, which definitely feels like it contains some kind of liquid. 
right? It, you hear it sloshing, right? It seems to be made of some sort of lightweight steel. And there's some sort of like tab at the top that you haven't quite figured out if that's the way to open it or to activate it or something. But as you cast the tech magic on it, nothing pings. This thing is like, it pings like a normal object, right? Which is odd. But the ichor definitely like glows with pure like transmutation magic and something else that doesn't quite register into a school of magic. I think when Dewey helped them make pants, there are a lot of pockets. It is not cargo short level pockets, but there are a lot of pockets. There's one big enough for that strange cylinder to go into. You slip that cylinder in and you also, I think, continue to harvest more mother's blood. We swing back to Vasanti. The shock wears off. Dr. Sato goes back to sobbing and Dr. Palpone, still holding this half-orc woman, looks at you and says, huh, <laughs> you know that, huh? That actually makes sense. I thought it was, I thought it was odd that Dr. Tsing would open up in that way. I thought it was rather uncharacteristic. And it also makes sense what you said about, about these monsters. Something is wrong here at the URL. Vasanti, I think that much is obvious, but even before now, our president, Lilith, she's been holing away in her private workshop for weeks. Months. Ever since the cataclysm, really, no one's ever seen her out and about. She's working on something. We thought it was a way to bring back the stars, but ha, evidently not. And we've suspected, but now this is confirmed. We've been, we've been making these monsters, Fisanti, since before the cataclysm. <laughs> Project Raven, Mahu's favor, we thought we were trying to capture a beast that we had somehow found and tagged years ago. I had no idea. Dr. Tikdaba, Dr. Sato, none of us had any idea. Only Dr. Ting knew all the details. Only the higher-ups do, the ones that have private meetings with President Lilith. All we know is that the Black Icker, it's a crucial component to making these monsters and President Lilith seems to seems to know the formula to making more of it. There's a, there's something else to Visanti. The attack, all of this. The monsters didn't break out of containment. They were let out. CUs just opened on their own and doors just locked. And the only person with enough clearance to do that is, well, it's President Lilith. I, uh, I saw something else. Uh, <clears throat> uh, I was, uh, before you got here, before the, 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 the dais activated, I, um, we got separated. That's what Tiktapod, uh, <laughs> that's what Tiktapod was. Um, and I was, uh, one of those things, the, the howlers, that's what we call them, the spines and the throat. It, it had pinned me in here. It had pinned me. It was going to get me. It was going to kill me. But then it, <laughs> it, uh, <laughs> it, it just... It, it, it vanished. It just disappeared off of me into nothingness. And that's the only reason I'm still alive, Vizanti. That's, that's the only reason I'm still here. It just, it just vanished. Sounds like there's so much going on. Uh, do you know how we can get to Lilith? 
it's okay, Dr. Sato. It's, it's all right. Why don't you just keep them? Yes. Lilith has been holed up in her private workshop. It's, uh... It's in Sector 9-2. It's a little complicated to... Cardu would know. Cardu used to work here. Cardu should know where Lilith's private workshop is. Or at the very least, the area. And I think, speaking of Cardu, we pan back to you, do we? As Uilani's looking up at you. <sighs> you. And she reaches forward and grabs you by the front of your robes and pulls you in hard, despite her, like, battered condition. Hey, wait, where... Why are you here? Where's, where's Hana? Hana is with Lilith! Dewey, your ex-wife is inches away from your face. Uh, her light brown skin shining with sweat and blood, her brown eyes furrowed in fury, anger, shock, resentment, grief, all of these emotions swirling around in the depths of her gaze as she pins you with that stare. Hana is with Lilith. What do you do? I think I grab her shirt right back and I go, what, what do you mean she's with Lilith? She, like, coughs as she is pulled forward by you, and you're, you sort of jolt her, and her broken, like, right arm sort of stutters. <sighs> For the past month, Cardu, ever since we came here to escape the storm, like I told you through the Andake Postal Service, Hana's been with Lilith. Some kind of internship or something. That's how she explained it to me. She's brilliant. Let her. Let her. Let her. <laughs> oh, Cardu, that is fucking rich coming from you. You want to talk about let her? You want to talk about being a responsible parent? You're a coward, Cardu. You are a coward through and through. There is not a bone in your body that doesn't seek to run away from your problems. You are, you are a fake paragon. You are, you are fate's greatest fucking joke, Cardu. When I found out you were the paragon of Kaltanger, <laughs> I laughed the entire day, 24 fucking hours, Cardu. I laughed. I laughed when I woke up. I laughed as I ate lunch. I laughed when I went to bed. <laughs> no one else at Indake knows this, but I do. I know you better than anyone, Cardu. You're a fake paragon. <laughs> Good luck, fate. Good luck, Indake. Cardu fucking quirk is all the way to save the day. But most of all, Cardu, you are a shitty fucking husband. And you're an even shittier dad. I let her. I let her. Have you ever showed up for Hana? Are you going to ever show up for Hana, huh? And I don't just mean physically. I mean show up. Do you even know what that means? Tell me, Cardu. What does it mean to show up for your child, huh? What do you know about parenting that I don't? That I haven't done? You know, I haven't been able to tell you because I was 
for the past year I've literally been past over a year I've literally been chased down by an assassin trying to come after me I was trying to keep you safe and also we all know this we all know I'm a shitty husband and a father like I'm working on it do we do we because you seem to say it as a way to absolve yourself of having to take fucking responsibility it's like, oh, oh, I'm Cardu. I'm a bad person. Da 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 da. Well, fuck, what does, what does, where does that fucking leave me, Cardu? Where does that leave me and Hana? Great, I'm glad you know you're a shitty person. Does that mean you just get to not become better? Because you can just sit and wallow in your own sorriness for yourself while we're here? Do, do you know how hard it is to raise a child by yourself in a fucking apocalypse, Cardu? While I'm struggling to survive, it's hard to show up for Hana. <laughs> frankly, frankly, Cardu, I don't fucking blame her. I understand. I get it. I fucking get why she hasn't chosen me. Why she's decided to go with Lilith. I, I get it. <laughs> I don't blame her. Have you changed at all, Cardu? Or are you the same man that left? If I was, I wouldn't have come back. You think I want to be here taking this? I, you want, you think it makes me happy to hear all this, to know how much of a failure I am? I would not have come back here if I hadn't been, if I hadn't changed, if I hadn't been working to save the world for, for her. And she finally lets go of you. She's... She's brilliant. You know? Smarter than me. And you know how good I am at what I do. Smarter than you, Cardu. She really is. And you're missing it. You've already missed it. And fuck. You might miss all of it. Lilith saw that, took her under her wing. They've been, they've been working on something together. If you can show her that you've changed, Cardu, maybe she can change too. So you need to show up. You need to give her a reason to choose you to choose us. Do you understand? Do my best. I hope it's good enough. I'm coming to. I can't just... And she tries to get up, but she lets out a shrill cry of pain and, like, falls back down. Uh, hold on. Don't move that. And he grabs, like, some gauze and it immobilizes her broken arm, shoulder. You look at her and her legs look bruised at the very least, maybe a fracture, like her left arm, like her left side is bleeding, part of her looks singed, her right arm looks like mangled in some way, like she is not doing well. You figure she's running on fumes and adrenaline, right? Like a mother's love for her child is sort of like pumping through her and is the only thing that's maybe keeping her conscious, actually. Uh, if she'll allow me, I want to patch her up as best as possible, cast cure wounds. Go for it, uh, yeah. Uh, that is 29 points of healing. Yeah. What is, uh, is it like a poultice or a salve? How does this manifest? 
yeah, I patch up her arm. I put like some ointment on it and then uh, wrap it up. Mm. Yeah, I think you like stabilize her and she like leans against the wall. And it's almost like as she's getting healed, like that adrenaline is leaving her and she just looks exhausted. Like as she's slumped against the wall and she's just going, I just need a, I just need a minute and I'll come with you and then I'll come with you. And I think at this point, the rest of you have all overheard this conversation. It was quite loud, especially on Ulani's side. And even the two doctors, the two researchers have turned, right, and are looking in Dewey's direction. What did the rest of you do? Jaron was maybe in the middle of, like, patching somebody up themselves when this conversation started to get very loud and very heated. And he just kind of, like, turned and, like, looked over as it was happening you should just rest that arm and uh, you should be okay. And he kind of gets up and like puts like an arm on Dewey's shoulder. Is everything okay here? No, but it's fine. This is, this is my ex-wife, Ulani. Um, Ulani, this is my business partner. We'll get to that later. Um, this is Ron. Our, our daughter is with the president of the URL. They've been working on something together. Please, please find her and try to show her that the choice she's making is not the right one. Please. We can do that. Do you know where the president of the URL, where they might be? You should know. Cardu should know. Cardu, it's Lilith's private workshop. You know where it is. Sure do. Never been down there, but... Well, I've been down there once. I know where it is. Uh, yeah. Uh, do we, Is there, like, a water cooler in this room? Uh... <laughs> uh <laughs> an intact water cooler? Like a pond? Like an oasis in a desert? There is. Next to the fire extinguisher, it, like, stands. The container is still there. It's, like, completely untouched by the battle. Uh, Dewey goes over and gets, like, a, a cone of water and brings it over to Ulani. Um, you bring this cone up to her lips and she just drinks, and some of it sloshes down her front, but she doesn't even care. She just drinks it, and uh, with every passing second, it seems to be slipping out of consciousness. Like, she had to say this thing to Cardu, and she's still sort of muttering, like, Hannah, I have to tell you everything. I have to apologize, Hannah. But she's, like, definitely drifting in and out of it. Dewey, I think we need to find a safe place for your ex-wife. Yeah, I don't want her to um, have to talk to Lilith with us. I don't want to talk to Lilith at all. I know. And I think Jaron's eyes kind of go up to the rope trick, which I assume is still active. Nobody's in there, but it's still up. Yeah. And Jaron just kind of looks at it and then looks back at Dewey. You want me to put my wife in... Um... I'm not going to say that. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> I've oh called it a God. hole in the past. Oh, oh no, God, no, not in the hole. Um, yeah, I guess we can, can you help me get her up there? I don't think she's in any, in any climbing um, shape. And then maybe we can find a more permanent um, place for her to, more tangible place for her to rest. Oh, oh we, we can help. Uh, it says Dr. Pelpone, who's sort of coming forward. Can we also... Stay there in the hole. Can you, uh, like, get up the rope physically? I'll help. 
and Rev sort of teleports back in like a column of feathers. And she looks, um, there's something on her face that like she looks at each of you and it's like she wants to have a conversation after this resolves. Like there's something really serious and dark on her face. And she isn't joking at all or even trying to make the situation lighter. She just sort of like takes uh, the two doctors who goes, who go, huh? And she throws them up like one arm after another up into the hole. And they like sort of, ah, they like, oh, and like the voice goes out of out of sight, and she Please also be more gen- careful with Ulani. <laughs> <laughs> she gently picks up Ulani, who's like drifting in and out, and going, "Huh, who's that? Is that Raven Queen?" And then she gently like lifts Ulani up and like deposits her up into the demi plane. Uh, as soon as Rev like materializes there, Vasanti is gonna get the hell away from there and actually probably like just join Jaron just for the sake of like not being anywhere near Rev right now. As soon as the scientists and Uilani are out of out of view and out of earshot, Rev turns on your group and says, What the scientists said about the empty beasts that have vanished. You all know what that means, right? Those souls are gone. We weren't here. There was nothing we could do for them. I know, I know, but it's still, it's still, we have to go. We have to go find Lilith. We have to stop this thing. I'm going to kill that woman with my bare hands, I swear. As long as you leave me Adam. (laughs) You can have Adam. We need to stop Lilith. And we need to tell your daughter, Dewey, that the choice she's making, she's, she's aligning herself with the wrong people. Uh, yeah, I'll figure out how to convince her on the way. What are we waiting for? You're the one who knows the way. Come on. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Uh, yep. Um, let's take a right down this hall. (sighs) All right. Weapons out. Monsters fucking everywhere. And Rev keeps, like, grim out as I think the five of you try, like, exit out of this (laughs) huge hole that the White Tiger Emissary had created, and you take a right down this hallway. It's like a fucking war zone. As you walk down the hallway, there are bodies everywhere. You hear like the distant skittering of beasts. Like you hear like the rush of fire, uh, like sounds of magic explosions going off, screaming, like thudding. Occasionally the earth is like shaking around you, right? To such extent that dust literally collides and plumes off of the ceiling. Like there's something above you and beneath you. It's just, it sounds like chaos everywhere. And as you walk, I actually kind of want to push in on Rev and Vasanti. As soon as they were in the hallway, wherever Rev has been adjacent uh, to the rest of the group, like, so if she's been leading the way, Vasanti's been taking the back. So I think for a while they've been on opposite ends until finally at some point, maybe uh, as the group has navigated around, they found themselves next to each other for the first time since getting here. Vasanti, can we talk? I don't know how much I have to say to you. Vasanti, please, you you have to, you have to just try to listen to me, okay? If what those scientists are saying is true and it's happening, I don't, and these souls are going to, to nothing? To the, to the stranger? Fuck, I don't know. I, listen, I'm sorry about 
what happened with Tyrion, okay? I'm sorry I couldn't give you what you wanted, but the choice I made, you have to understand why I made it. It was the right choice, Visanti. Some souls don't deserve to go to the after. That's not up to us to decide. It was up to you to decide. Anyone who has a soul, it is my duty, my responsibility as the paragon of the Raven Queen to make sure it, it survives beyond death. It has a proper burial in the after. You're the paragon of Scott and Nectus. It's your responsibility to honor risk and reward, to make bold choices and help people because of them. This is mine. I can't walk away from it, Visanti. Not for anything. Every time I've taken a risk, it has led to me almost dying every single time. Tyrion was the closest I've ever come to actually dying, and that's saying a lot considering all the things I've been through this past year. I thought I was angry and wanting vengeance against Sievert this whole time, these last seven years, and it was Tyrion the whole time. It would be like me letting the Myriad go to paradise or some wonderful retreat instead of killing him for you. Like we agreed. <sighs> That's not what the after is, Visanti. Everyone's after is different. Tyrion will answer for everything he's done in his after. But to let his soul go to nothingness, that's, that's real sacrilege. You know, I didn't believe in the gods a year ago. I wish I could go back to that time. What are you saying to me right now, Vasanti? I'm saying I really am hurt. And for, I, I, I don't want anything to do with you right now. Look, I, I understand being hurt, and I'm going to continue to give you all the space you need and want, but also please consider the world is fucking ending, and I I need you to be on my side here, Visanti. I don't know if I can go, if we, any of us, if I can face the stranger without knowing that you're, you're with me. Visanti closes her eyes and as she closes her eyes all she can see is like you know a, a flashback of her of, from her own perspective of laying on the ground holding on for dear life struggling as this poison is entering her system and the, her body racked with pain and her father Tyrion just standing over her gloating and talking about all all of his plans to become stronger than the gods themselves. All he had to do was kill her. And he came so incredibly close. He was so incredibly powerful that there was nothing Vasanti could do to stop him in that moment. And then she opens her eyes. Look, Rev, I... We're on the same side still. I just... I can't be beside you right now doing it. Fine. And Rev sort of backs off and lets you walk forward as she slows down. And as she slows down, I think we like 
pan back through this group to find actually Jaron. Jaron, as you're walking with your party, what's going on with you? I think Jaron is a bit rattled being in this space. I don't think that they were expecting to find so much chaos and so much confusion and action immediately upon arrival here. He can't help but also think about Adam as well. Knowing that Adam works in some capacity with the URL, they must be around here somewhere. And I think that memory of being back in Damathati, of having like spoken to Adam, of having that experience with Adam is kind of roiling inside of his mind at the moment. And he's starting to feel, I think, a little bit afraid. As this fear, I think, coils inside your soul and sort of rises up, simmers on the surface of your consciousness, you feel, hmm, I think you, I think it just comes out of nowhere. I think you hear a voice in your left ear. And the voice just goes, Using his voice. No, that was a bold choice. Do I recognize this voice at all? Roll religion. I got a nine. <laughs> it feels familiar because of Asante. During your time in the Iron Citadel, when Scott and Nectus had had that like passing moment with you, this voice feels very similar to that moment. I had no other choice, I think. And in your right ear, you hear a different voice go, Huh, and what payoff exactly are you hoping for? I think Jaron is like piecing together this connection to Vasanti, this familiarity that they're starting to feel. A familiarity that's resonating like deep within his soul even like it's not really like necessarily a memory that's being tugged on but something within Jaron himself like as a person and as he's sort of like piecing this together they're kind of like answering these questions not it's like when you have something on the tip of your tongue and I think like that is sort of the mental space that he's in as he like answers this question I just want to make sure that everyone Everyone is okay. We'll make it out of this okay. And what are you willing to lose in pursuit of that, hmm? Whatever it takes. But isn't whatever it takes what got you into that mess with Ravi? And I think that is when it kind of clicks for Jaron. Who exactly that they are speaking to. And I think they realize that these are the voices of Scott and Nectus coming out to him. And they kind of like, I think like stop for a second in their tracks, like as everybody's walking. Scott? Nectus? Hey there. Hello, Jaron. What are you doing here? Shopping. Looking around. What exactly are you looking for? Your paragon, she's over there. Our paragon is a little predisposed with her own issues. We tried to give her guidance the best we can, but sometimes 
You just have to feel it out. And sometimes you have to lash out. We have felt from Galtanger, from the Raven Queen, even from Nitbuza, our various siblings and friends. Hmm. Actually, Scott, why don't you take this one? Fine by me. Jaron, what we want to know is, are you capable of changing? Jaron, I think, like, slowly starts to resume walking, like, having sort of fallen behind the group a little bit, and they consider this question, and they consider that all of this time, that's what they've been trying to do, is to change, is to be better. And they kind of, like, think to themselves, I hope so. I believe so. It's what I've been working towards. We hope so, too. We believe so, too. Or rather, we want to believe so. Jaron, did you know that the first mortals of Andake, before the Titans themselves, we were imbued with a spark of the Seven's own divinity? We made other mortals of our own, crafted them from magic and love and chance and fate. And in this act of creation, we too ascended to godhood and became the eighth god. How did you come upon such power? No mortal has ever been capable of that before. The world was a little different back then. Magic was more... raw. Fluid. Free. Flowing. We were closer to the gods. There wasn't quite a beyond yet. That was our idea, wasn't it, honey? After was mine, beyond was yours. Why create such separations between the now and you? Because we started as people, just like you are currently, Jaron. See, Scott and I, we're the most, hmm, mortal of the eight gods, you might say. We understand what it's like to love, to lose, to have a life that's so brief and yet so beautiful. And we were also tired of being yanked around by the other gods. Do you know how annoying it was to be the only mortals on the now and have seven all-powerful deities yank you around in every direction? We were sick of it. We wanted to make our own choices, take our own risks, reap our own rewards. That's all I want to do. That's all I want to give to the Paragons. A choice. Free will. Hmm. What do you think, Nectus? How about this one? Well, love, do recall that you weren't quite keen on our Paragon when we first met her. What do you think? Hmm, haven't decided yet, haven't decided yet, but... They're not a bad choice. Sorry, a choice for what exactly? You already have a paragon. Keeperhood, darling. What would that mean, exactly? It would mean being willing to take risks, falling on your own heart. And I think hearing that phrase, 
like falling on your own heart, Jaron's eyes fall on Sitlali, who is already a keeper, has made already that choice, a very similar choice, and is a version of Jaron's own heart manifested. And they look over at Vasanti, the paragon of Scott and Nectis, and then over at Dewey, paragon of Galtanger, a friend to Dewey. And they kind of like mull over this decision. May I ask you one question? <gasps> just the one? I thought you'd have a thousand. Maybe just the one to start. What is it? You say that you are for free will, for making your own choices, you're taking your own risks. Do you want to die? When the stranger comes, do you want to live? Of course we don't want to die. What kind of a piss-poor question is that? Scott, Scott, Scott. We want to live. Just like you, Jaron. The prophecy states the Paragon souls and us as the godshars within them will sacrifice ourselves to hold back the stranger a little while longer. That doesn't really feel like a victory to us. Nor to me. Nor to me. Maybe. Maybe. Their eyes fall back on Vasanti, and they wonder, what does that mean for the Paragon specifically? Does this mean protecting Vasanti as well, or just Skod and Nectis? And I think this is a question that kind of, like, rings in their heart, maybe in a way that, like, Scott and Nectis can sense that it's there, even without Jaron needing to necessarily ask it out loud. You're conflicted. We're conflicted, too. Why don't you think over it a little bit, and... If you're ever in doubt, flip a coin. And you feel something hard in your hand. Jaron looks down at their hand. And it's a coin. And on one side of the face is a symbol for Skod, and on the other side is a symbol for Nectis. Thrawn, I think, turns this coin over in their hand, like in between their fingers, like looking at one side and then the other. Leaving it up to chance might be better than making my own choice. And they're just kind of saying this absentmindedly to themselves as they're walking along with the group. Yeah, and I think on that, like, the presences seem to, like, pull away from your ears as you mull this coin over. And we are actually going to pan over to Sitlali. Sitlali, I think if it's all right with uh, Vasanti, that maybe you were standing, you were walking behind Vasanti and Rev while they had that argument in not-so-hushed tones. And now, like, at this point, like, Rev has, like, stepped back and is now in stride with you. Yeah, that tracks. That makes sense. Sitlali is, like, kind of torn between... Torn in a couple directions. Thoughts about Adam just kind of, like, always spinning themselves out in tired circles. Like, the same thing over and over again in the background, and they just kind of try to phase that out as best they can. If it's okay with you, actually, Sitlali... Yeah. As Rev moves in to step with you and you're trying to push thoughts of Adam away uh, as you feel her presence parallel to your body, you hear her voice cut through that miasma of Adam, 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 Adam. And she just sort of goes, 
he wasn't in that room, you know, that was Jaron. That was... Right. He can do that. I, um... It's been a while. I forgot. <laughs> yeah, well, it's been a while since uh, we've talked, too. Yeah, um... And I think they slip back into Raven speech without realizing it. Since, um... Okuru and dinner, right? <laughs> yeah, that failed dinner party. And Rev also slips into Raven's speech like a pair of worn boots. I, um... Rev, I'm sorry. I don't... I don't understand what you're apologizing for. I mean, I did kind of threaten to kill you oh, that time. And right, then the uh, time before, before that, there was the whole... And then... But I don't... And, like, sin is a... Th and they just kind of gesture at the everything about that. Sidlali, <laughs> it's, it's water under the roots. All right? It's... Listen. Thank you for what you said to me during the New Year Eve's party, even though, you know, didn't really end up to be much of a party in the end. About Leaf. Yeah. Yeah. Leaf's good, I think. At peace. At least. Did you talk to her? She guards my after. <laughs> oh. oh, I see. So she's your steward, huh? Yeah. <laughs> she was mine, too. Oh. Who do you think hers was? <laughs> well, you haven't died yet, right? There's something... There's something vaguely deathy about you. I... And they kind of run a hand along the marigolds. Technically died twice? Right, the whole time loop thing. Oka tried to catch thing. me up on that on Adolin, but... That just it boggles my mind. I guess if you technically did die in the past, which was also the present and the future... Maybe you were also- you were Leaf's steward? Or maybe it was me, because I have died. Maybe it was both of us, I don't know. Maybe it hasn't happened yet. Or maybe it already has. Fuck me, this shit's hard. <laughs> yeah. It is hard. Sp uh, <clears throat> speaking of... Fucking you and hard thing- I don't know, this is a really bad transition. Where's Mercy? That was probably the worst transition. That was like mercy level transition. I don't actually. know, Silali. It's awkward between us, okay? I'm trying to break the ice. It's, uh, you know, you tried to kill me and I forgave you, but I don't know if you forgive yourself. Uh, I, I do, I think. Good. I'm mostly sorry that I called you sacrilege. I've been called far worse, but it did, um, it did, it did sting, coming from one of, well, Leaf's favorite. <laughs> yeah, I knew it would. That's why I said it. <sighs> oh, you do have a way with cutting words, Sitlali. <laughs> Always have. Do you, um, do you still believe it? Do you still think what? I'm sacrilege? Not for a second. <laughs> what changed? 
I think the dying did a lot of it. Right, technically, yeah. I'm sacrilege. Because you're technically um, also, yeah, uh-huh, makes sense. I also, I also, um, dragged a piece of Oka's soul that was in the after back to the now and put that them back together. That's how they're the paragons, so technically I have done the greatest sacrilege. Right. I thought I was misfeeling things. You know, being the paragon of the Raven Queen, you and Oka felt really, like, super deathy. Like, something super fucking weird was going on. But there wasn't really any time to talk about it on Adolin, and then Vasanti and I had that falling out, and... Right. <sighs> Listen, Sidlali, I... I know, as well as anyone, what it feels like to die and then come back to life. It's violent and it's painful and you're never quite the same and you know what i'm glad you became keeper of sun makes sense for what it's worth i know that you did the right thing even if she can't see that right now you did the right thing there was no other choice i would have done the same thing if i were the paragon (laughs) (laughs) thank you Sit, Holly, that coming from you means the world. I hope she'll be able to realize that soon. Hopefully before we die. Well, hopefully things change and you don't have to. (laughs) Yeah. And Rev sort of looks off and gets this kind of wistful, really sad look in her eyes as you say that, and she turns back to you and that look is gone. (laughs) I think we can change it. You know what? I think we can too. I don't believe you, but that's okay. (laughs) Ha ha! You don't have to. Just know that, um, I'm willing to do whatever it takes to make sure that this world stays as beautiful and as magical and as safe as it always has been. And I'm sure you are too. And I think Sitlali gets kind of a wistful, far off, sad look. And then when they look back to Rev, it's not there anymore. Mmm. Traumatized priestesses of the Raven Queen, rise up. (laughs) Rise up. I think we pan past Sitlali and Rev over to Dewey, who's leading the group. Dewey, how are you doing in the wake of what happened with Uwilani? Dewey is keeping himself busy. As they're running past, running through this hallway, he's just pointing out like, so that's hardware, that one's hardware, that one's wetware, uh, that's a storage room. Uh, experimental chamber, that's a staff bathroom, don't go in there, uh, the toilets are bad. Uh, there's like the break room. Just like to no one in particular, he's at the head of the pack, so he's just sort of speaking to generally behind him. And as I think you're pointing out all these places and like sort of like scurrying around and maybe also like poking your head out around corners to make sure like an area is clear before going through it, you hear a voice, a familiar one, ring out in your head. And Dusty says, Uh... Dad, can we talk? Uh, Sure, what's up? So that was like kind of my stepmom or something, right? Yeah, sorry about that. Um, She just has a problem with me, don't worry. Uh, It's not about you, don't worry. 
Oh, yeah, no, no. I mean, you didn't bring me up, which, uh, which I guess, you know, I guess I can't really blame you for it, I guess. Because I feel like she would have, like, chewed your head off if she knew that I existed. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll tell her soon. Um, we're gonna get you, we're gonna get you a new body. Uh, we're gonna, uh, you're gonna meet your, you have a sister, by the way. Um. Yeah, I, uh, <clears throat> I gathered that. Sorry, I didn't tell you before explicitly. Um, uh, sentient magical items who gain personhood through a soul but don't have a body. I don't exactly know how I age, or if I age in a way. Is she is she my older sister technically because she existed first, or am I the older brother because I may I don't know. I feel like I'm like 15, 16. I I mean I feel like she existed. You, so she's the older. Hey, okay, cool, cool. cool. You can all talk right, about right. that with her. Yeah, right. I don't know. I'm really nervous about that. What if she hates me? What if she? What if she thinks that I? I don't know. Trying to replace her? No. Um. I'll make. She will also have problems with me that are solely, you know, problems with me. Um. So I'll smooth things over there, and then, uh, depending on how that goes. The two of you can talk. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. That sounds good. Um, but uh, this is kind of a dumb question, <laughs> Dad. And you know, forget. You know what I say. It's just it's whatever it is. But uh, do you do you love me? I, you know what? Forget it. I knew it was a dumb question. It was a dumb question. For, forget it. Forget it. Uh, I think Dewey stops in his tracks, um, and maybe like people behind him bump into him because they're running, uh, and he turns to look at the jar on his hip, and he says. Of course. Uh, and I'll... I'll prove it to you, I promise. Okay. Okay, yeah, yeah. I, I thought, I figured, I figured you did love me, but, um, it's just... I don't know what your... your ex-wife, my stepmom, question mark, Uilani. What Uilani said was, um... I don't know, it made me feel kind of scared, I guess. Because, you know, when she was talking, I started thinking about, you know, back in Talmud, when I first sprang into being, and I was a sword, I thought everything was awesome, and I was so excited to be here, and to be alive, and to help out, and do stuff, fly around, and kill monsters, and... But then, you know, um, you, you chunted me away, and we didn't really talk for, like, half a year. And I thought maybe, at first I thought maybe you were mad at me, maybe, like, I was too impulsive, or I wasn't mature enough, or whatever, or so that's why I grew up, you know, that's why I turned into a teenager, maybe if I was older, if I was more mature, maybe you'd, you'd love me more, um, and I know that I didn't exactly reach out either, I, like, didn't do anything, you know, I guess I was being kind of like a brooding teen or whatever, uh, but, you know, during that phase, you know, in the court and in the carnival and, you know, in too long, a part of me secretly hoped that you would, like, I don't know, uh, knock on my door and bring me a plate of fruit or something. But, um, you never did. And when you finally did reach out in Kirtal, it was because you wanted me to kill something. And all I ever wanted, I guess, all I ever want, really, is to make you proud. To make you love me. In, in like a real way, and I know you say you love me and that you, you're gonna prove it to me and I, I really, really, really want to believe that. I really do. I just, I just know I'm not quite a real person yet, but I'd hope 
at least I'd be your real son. Of course, I love you whatever form you take. And uh, I would have brought you fruit, um, but like you were a sword. I'll, I'll do that um, once you have a real body, okay? Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I meant the, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> sorry, my voice is like cracking. Uh, yeah, that'll happen. <laughs> right, that's weird, right? Like my soul voice. Anyway, <clears throat> I, uh, I meant that more metaphorically. But yeah, that'd be great. That'd be great. I'd love some fruit. I want to eat some fruit when I have a body. That'd be nice. I'd like to taste fruit. Um, and, and, and and listen, Dad, uh, I know you, um, I know you never asked to be a paragon. I know that's hard. I know how you feel. I mean, I'm not a paragon, but I never asked to be here. I never asked to become alive. I never asked to have Sievert's table thrown on me and wake me up. But you know, here we are. I mean, if this past year has taught me anything, you find your people, you find your family, where you can get them. Yeah, yeah, take what we can get, I guess. And uh, I know this is really unfair and it sucks, but um, you're gonna try, right? You're gonna try really hard? Work with what you have? I'm gonna try my darndest. And no matter how things turn out, uh, I'm gonna make you proud. Okay, all right, bye. Bye, love you. Oh wait, well, uh, just one quick thing, Dad. Don't say darndest again, it really ages you. Cool, um. Okay, bye. Sounds good, bye. And I think, Dewey, on that, like, you, <laughs> you reach a part of the URL where you're like, okay, you're starting to get closer to where Lilith is. This is the entrance to Sector 9. And we are sort of like at the end of a massive corridor that's kind of like a, a domed corridor with a rounded top. Uh, and there are a series of fluorescent lights that are flickering red. And the klaxons have faded into the background. At this point, all of you have gotten used to it. And the flashing strobing crimson alarm lights all around you have also adjusted to your eyesight. And it's just this massive door. Uh, which, beyond it, Dewey, you know is just like another series of hallways until you reach Lilith's private vestibules, workshops, and chambers. But there's a keypad, and this door is like steel and reinforced. What do all of you do? Jaron, I think, steps up in front of the door and in front of the group and says, Before we all go in, I don't know what we're up against, so I just want to make sure that we are as prepared as we can be. And they go to the handloom on their back and they sort of pull it out and pluck off three different threads off of it. And they go and tie one thread each on each of your hands, one for Sitlali, one for Dewey, and one for Vasanti. Mechanically, I'm casting Bardic Inspiration on all of you. That should keep you protected. Speaking of protected, if there was a kid in there, that is my daughter. Do not hurt her. I don't know what she's up to, but it's Lilith we're after, and not, not Hana. So, sorry, Jaron, you're looking a little um, scorched there, and I think Salali comes over and just kind of like pat, pat, and cure wounds you before we go in, because um, during the walk it clicked. Rev like being like Adam wasn't there, that was Jaron. 
it makes sense now and they feel bad. Uh, so we're gonna cure wounds at a higher level. John is still oh. covered in blood, by the way, just so we're aware. His own or? No, it's the it's the black ichor blood ah. off of the empty. Yep. Mm. Yeah, so they're just kind of like, cool, gross. I hate that for me. Uh... I think Vasanti's just like checking out the lock and trying to see like, you said there was a number pad, right? So do we do you, do you know a password to get in here or do I know a password? The password into sector nine, which is Lilith's private sector that no one really is allowed in unless you're here on official business. You've only been here once, uh, which is when you got reprimanded by Lilith and summarily fired from your job slash you escaped after the bomb watch was collapsed onto your wrist. Uh, and you were given the passcode to enter sector nine of your own accord. And the passcode is Eden. Well, there's only one password I know. She probably changed it, but I go in and type in Eden on the number pad. You type in Eden. There's a hissing noise, a whirring sensation, and the doors open. Uh, they just sort of hiss like pistons coming down to reveal not a network of hallways or another corridor like you remember, like you anticipate, but something else entirely. This is a massive chamber. It's like 100, maybe 200 feet across, 50 feet tall at least, with a domed ceiling. And on the far side of this chamber, there is a circular door like the one that just opened in front of you, and it also seems to be made of steel and most likely locked. On the eastern wall of this chamber, 30 feet into the air, there is a rectangular pane about 10 feet long, 5 feet tall, made of reinforced glass, almost like a viewing window or something. Every single inch of wall, ceiling, and floor, except for that window, is covered in paintings of eyes. Crimson eyes are slathered onto every tile. Their irises are moving in this erratic, roving fashion. And in the center of this chamber, on the ground in front of you, not 50 feet away, is the myriad. And behind that glass, watching, is Adam. This episode of The Second Stranger was edited by Connie Chong. Transplaner RPG is proudly sponsored by at Dimitri Opines on Twitter and explaintrade.com, a negotiation skills training consultancy, because you can't ask to roll persuasion in real life. Check out explaintrade.com. Please consider giving us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. This helps so much with getting new listeners to find us. New podcast episodes drop every Tuesday. If you can't wait that long, tune into our live stream Saturdays at 7 p.m. U.S. Central Time on Twitch at TransplanarRPG. Also, toss us a follow on Twitter, Tumblr, Instagram, and YouTube at TransplanarRPG. We also have a Patreon. Patrons get early access to episodes, character sheets, high-res art, and much, much more. And finally, a very special thank you to our Patreon Paragons. Alex, Brooke Bright, Charles, Chiacres, Cora Eckert, Hat, Conding, Lex Slater, Lyle and Peanut, Matt Sweeney, Purple Mouse, Riley, Spencer Critchfield, Scruffesis, and Target.